This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. I'm Josh King, here for Adam Belmar, who's somewhere in Broward County watching the GOP slugfest on the front row. And on our show this week, Gingrich and Clinton, Galen and Goodman. We're in the time machine talking like it's 1995. You remember, the House Speaker was at the height of his power and the 42nd President was trying to find his footing. We'll talk about these two men looking back through unique lenses. First, Rich Galen on Gingrich. The GOP strategist was Newt's communications director in the glory years, and he's been following his trajectory on the current campaign with a well-trained eye. What accounts for his fall and rise and fall and rise again? Then Barack Goodman, holder of one of the best jobs in the world of polyoptics. He's the writer and director of the next installment of PBS's The American Experience, titled simply Clinton. We'll talk about the creative process of reliving the 90s through the eyes of those who had a front seat to history. Now, as we start here today, I'm joined in the studio in Washington, D.C. by an old friend, a guy I worked side by side with, let's say, back in 1999 and 2000, a person who I will describe as a true pioneer in digital journalism. It's Rich Galen. He authors three days a week the Mullings column, in addition to, like Adam and partially myself, carrying on a a consulting business in Washington, D.C. But Rich's musings, called Mullings again at mullings.com, are short, I would say, 400-word columns in which he, with a sort of wry sense of humor, really calls it like it is, calls it like he's seeing it, both looking at the Republican campaign and looking, for instance, over the last year or so at Barack Obama. So I'm so pleased to welcome my old friend, comrade from the old speakout.com days, Rich Galen. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you, Josh. Those were the days, my friend. Those were. I mean, those days, Rich, came after, I would say, a defining employment experience in your life. And Rich, we started working together, I think, in like late 98 or 99. It was a period after you'd worked in the office of the House Speaker. And did you ever think that your time working for a congressman from Georgia, the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, would again bring you so prominent in your analysis of this figure that we had thought was sort of long consigned to history? No, I, I, it's, it shocked me. Uh, I, and and like so many others, I, I declared his campaign dead last May uh, after everybody walked out. And, and I, I, was, I did, um, I did uh, Morning Joe uh, in Des Moines, and Chris Matthews was sitting next to me, and he said, Newt is like Freddy Krueger. Just when you think he's done, he finds a new hockey mask and he shows up again. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it's like. Is that a typical dynamic, Rich, of a... Um, a- election campaign with a sitting incumbent, seemingly strong incumbent, who probably stands a pretty good chance of re-election, that it attracts people who think they could take a shot or perpetuate their brand by by maintaining a campaign if you are uh, if you are Herman Cain or Newt Gingrich, and your business almost depends on your notoriety? Yeah, well, I mean, without getting into what the, what the chances are of re-election or anything else, I think uh, in Herman's Cain, Herman Cain's 
part. I really do think that was a fraud. I, I had I, somebody said there was a book signing that, uh, and an election campaign broke out in the middle of it, a book tour, and um, and I so I don't ever think that that Herman Cain ever thought he was going to pop to the top of the charts. I really do think Newt did, and you remember that for about an hour and forty five minutes four years ago, he announced for president, and then his lawyers told him what was involved, what he'd have to give up, and there was no time to unwind everything, and so he. He immediately decided he wasn't running for president. But since that time, I think he's been thinking about this. And um, one of the things about Newt, and I'm not a huge fan, but but I do give him credit where credit's due. And one of the things that he taught a lot of people, including me, is that most people with good ideas fail because they give up too soon. The first time they hit a, a you know, kind of a roadblock, they, they throw their hands up and say, well, that's going to be too hard. And Newt's not like that. He will, If he thinks he's on the right path, he will keep going. And, you know, he started going uh, after the House of Representatives sometime in 1982, and it took him 12 years, and he got there. Um, and what about this this cycle, Rich? I mean, this is a cycle that saw, uh, first of all, Rick Perry, governor of Texas, uh, in power in a very... in in a very large state, the last state to send a Republican president to the White House. Uh, you have um, uh, Chris Christie, you have Tim Pawlenty. I mean, people sort of either in power, uh, and Mitch, Mitch Daniels, Daniels, Mitch yep. Daniels too, people either in power with an established base or just out of office that would be sort of relevant to the times, they all decided to balk at this race. Why? Yeah, well, it's, it, I, think, I think it's probably different in each case, but I think the bigger... If there is one issue, it's they just didn't want to go through it. I mean, when Christie was probably thinking about it, he was watching how Rick Perry was being pilloried because he just didn't know enough about other stuff to be to run for president. Herman Cain, he didn't know that that China had a nuclear weapon. I mean, there is a lot you have to know if you're going to run for president and deciding, you know, 15 minutes before you throw your hat in the ring, I'm going to do this often is not a good idea. Now, that's different for running for vice president, where it's a full-out sprint for about 10 weeks. Right. And if you're a sitting governor, the worst that happens, you know, if you win, uh, you know, you get a house, you get a car, you get an airplane. Uh, the president gets an army. But the only vice president that I know that got his own army was Cheney, but that we don't count that. The But but if you lose, you go back to the governor's mansion, so it's a pretty good deal. So you just I, go back I, to work. Yeah, that's right. Um, and But I think, you know, if you go to Haley had, you know, I, I'm not sure he wanted to put his family through all that, the, the, all the lobbying stuff. Mitch had that, you know, his 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 very public marriage, divorce, remarriage, and he he was pretty honest about the fact that that he went through it all with his wife and his daughters, and they all said they didn't want to put up with it, so he didn't do it. But you know, going back um, uh, to um, to uh, the 1992 cycle, uh, they the Democrats were this is running against um, against H. W. Bush 41. Um, remember that they were so weak, they were called the Seven Dwarfs. That's right. And at the end of it, one of the dwarfs got to raise his hand on the steps of the Capitol, and he was your boss. And he did, Rich, uh, because he was aided in one way by not... Uh, he only got, I think, 43 44% of the popular vote. He had a third man right. in the race, a guy you work closely with, right? Ross Perot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't work on that campaign. I was working for Bush, of course, but uh, but you know the, the issue there is... It's, and the same thing happened... Uh, on the other side to Al Gore, if um, uh, what I was going to say was that Perot didn't win any states, but he siphoned off enough votes so that uh, Bill Clinton could win the states, and except for one, I think at the time, all the states were winner take all, so you didn't need, you only had to win by one more vote, or as the case in Florida in 2000, if um, 
uh, Ralph Nader hadn't been in that race, Al Gore would have been president. Now, Rich, we, we, we follow you very closely uh, on all the major cable channels and the broadcast networks and offering the constant commentary about the current campaign, and we're going to get back to that in a minute. But later on in the show, we're going to have uh, Barak Goodman, the, uh, the writer and director of the next installment of the American Experience series, Clinton. And uh, it's a four-hour documentary, and it brings home in stark relief, mostly in part two, The Survivor, uh, the whole story of, uh, of uh, the president's relationship with Monica Lewinsky and impeachment. And if you could sort of bring us back to where you were, Rich Galen, working with Speaker Gingrich, because there's so many pictures that uh, Barack Goodman uses in his documentary of uh, President Clinton trying to uh, negotiate with Gingrich to avert the government shutdown and the, re- the unique relationship that the two of them had. And compare that, if you would, to uh, Barack Obama and John Boehner today. Yeah, that's a, that is a great, that's a great idea. They, I mean, there's, there's a whole book in that, in those two things. Uh, the, the, when, when I was working uh, in, the, in the political office, and unlike the White House on the Hill, the political operatives have to work out of the, either the RNC or the DNC, even if you're the speakers or the majority leaders. Political people, you can't work out of the, out of the uh, you can't be on the official payroll, although we spent all our days in the office. But the um, Newt used to come back from the White House negotiating with the president. And he, he would say, you know, he, he got me again. He sat me down on the couch and he looked and he said, Newt, we're two guys from nowhere that came from nothing. And we're the two most powerful men in the world, and we can figure. We are smart enough to figure this out. We're we're you know trained enough to figure this out. We can do this. And and Newt would come back and you know, kind of enthused with the, with a new sense of, of finding a deal. But on the way back, he didn't know that that your guys had gone to the briefing room and just beat the crap out of him for twenty minutes. For twenty minutes with the press corps, and by the time he got back to the hill, they had just you know diminished everything. But they had but they had an interest, and still do I think have an interesting relationship. Uh, we didn't know. I did not know. Nobody knew about Callista at the time. Um, people now, in retrospect, have been saying, "Well, everybody knew about that." And I keep saying, "Do you think, while Gingrich was trying to impeach the president over Monica Lewinsky, that his good friend David Bonier, Democrat from where was he, Michigan, who hated Gingrich, you think he was keeping that secret to help his friend Newt Gingrich? No, nobody knew about it. And so um, that part of the American experience of uh, um, miniseries about about uh, President Clinton uh, has a, has special meaning now because Newt is being forced to kind of back and fill on uh, on who knew what wh- and when whether he did um, he th- his his problem this week is that he said he uh, it had nothing to do with the uh, with the president and Monica Lewinsky it had everything to do with the president lying to a grand jury that which would have been fine except that Newt went on to say that he had been deposed twice. Uh, and he understood that uh, under oath, you, you know, that it's a felony to lie. And it turns out he was never deposed. But, you know, that's Newt. Newt will, um, Newt will take a grain of, not even truth, a grain of something that could possibly be true and invent an entire, weave an entire story around it. Now, Rich, in uh, Barack Goodman's, um documentary, The American Experience, Clinton, uh, he has a very interesting uh, focus on Michael Isikoff and the reporting that he was doing with 
Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky and trying to break that story with his Newsweek editors right. who at the very last moment when the story was about to break they spiked pulled it they it. spiked it they wouldn't go with it and the only thing Linda Tripp could do was call this guy named Matt Drudge right. who had a nascent uh, website called the Drudge Report at the time and that wasn't a very different time from when Rich Galen was starting Mullings.com. Can you tell us how that came to be and why the heck you've kept it up for 14 years? Well, you know, it's it, it's kind of interesting. I started it, actually, that predated uh, Mullings. I, I, I was, when I was doing radio in Marietta, Ohio, 45750, on WMOA 1490 on your AM dial. That's I should say this is Ch- POTUS Channel 124 on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. I'm glad to I'm glad to throw you the the, the cue. I need it, believe me. <laughs> um, but I used to write a daily commentary on uh, on this local ch- four at the time it was a class four radio station, which meant that it had 200,000 uh, watts daytime, 250 watts at night. The sheriff's cars had more power in their radios than we had. Uh, but I wrote a daily commentary, so three two or three minutes, just on whatever was going on in town. So I got used to writing on a regular basis, came to Washington, and there was really no no value in that. But when I when I went to the NRCC, I would occasionally just kind of draft, you know, something that was th- that I thought would either be amusing or irritating to the Democrats. The NRCC is the National Republican yeah. Congressional Committee, and um, and what, but Mullings, and irritating you were. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I was good at it. I still am to that to some degree. But the um, but when I went to GoPack, and this was in March of '98. I was looking for some mechanism that I that I had always had a great relationship with the Washington Press Corps, um, even though my two best known bosses were Dan Quayle when he was a congressman and a senator, and as we've discussed, Newt when he was uh, whip and speaker, um, and uh, but they they just hated GoPack. and I used to accuse them of having a macro in their word processors that <laughs> as soon as they they typed, oh you know G O P A C, it would th- their word processor would spit out you know. That has been at the base of all of Newt Gingrich's ethical problems since the year, you know, 1932, and they get little white flecks in the corners of their mouths because they get so excited. And I was looking for some way to sort of get inside their defenses, and so I, st- I just started this on a regular basis. It was originally it was called, ta- called Talking Points, and then Monica Lewinsky wrecked that, and so I changed it to Mullings, because the only organization on the planet that uses the verb to mull when it, with any with any regularity. Our Associated Press headline writers. Nobody. We never say, "Honey, I'm mulling, I'm mulling Chinese <laughs> or Italian tonight." <laughs> and it, it was very good. In the beginning, it was, um, it went just to the press corps, and it was facts because email wasn't ubiquitous yet. And uh, it, it went to I, I don't know a couple of hundred people. And then the Hill staff found out about it, and they wanted to be on it. And then donors found out about it, and it got to be about a thousand people, and uh, that got very expensive because it was twenty-five cents a page. And at that time, I did keep it to 500 words because I can get you can get 500 words on on one page. Uh, now it's it's a regular column length that's about 750 words. But then at the end of by the end of 1998, um, it became clear that enough people had email uh, that we could send it out that way and uh, and save GoPack a ton of money. And uh, I got an, I got a call from Tim Russert's secretary, who said that Mr. Russert doesn't have email. Could she get it? <laughs> and then she printed out for him, and I said, "Of course, please tell Mr. Russert that I still think that he is one of the great reporters of the 17th century." 
Now, Mullings continues to this day. Um, right. Now it's close to about 40,000 people. 40,000 people. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and, you know, it, in, in, in some ways, I think it sustained you uh, even when you were sort of... Uh, in the middle of this decade, uh, the last decade, doing an assignment for the White House, uh, working on Iraq, and, and I want you—I want you to tell our listeners how that assignment came to be, what you did. But I do want to maybe tee it up by having, by sharing that I looked back uh, at a little piece you wrote back in December, Christmas 2011, mm-hmm. six words. Yeah. And, uh, you know, usually, as you say, you are a little biting, uh, a little conservative, put a, a, a dagger in the eye of Democrats, but this was very straightforward. You're talking about the work that you do in, uh, in what you call the green room or, or um, the yeah, bunker, the green, the, the yeah. green room, mm-hmm. and, uh, and how, well, you know, one of the jobs you have is you need a lot of phone lines, so it was something that a lot of troops uh, needed to be able to, you, you allowed it, troops to access it to call home, and I'll, I'm just going to read three paragraphs, and then I want you to tell me about those six words. Okay. Starting at about six this morning, the bad guys tried to prove that neither Saddam's capture about two weeks previous, nor Christmas meant anything to them by launching mortar attacks. They didn't hit much, but they kept us on edge all day. Because of the attacks, the young Marines who nightly come in to use our phones to call home were absent, because they were out protecting us. They'll probably patrol all night. We'll let them use our phones tomorrow. All over Iraq, all over the globe, there are young people like our Marines who are out protecting us. They are American service personnel who are not home tonight, and will not be home tomorrow, nor the day after that. Give us the time and place, and what happened after that? Well, this was, I'm, 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 it makes, it chokes me up just thinking about it. These kids are so good. I mean, all over the world, not, and not, not just military people, but State Department, USAID. I mean, we have young Americans all over the world that are force-projecting American values, sometimes under arms, sometimes not. But as we're seeing in, in Egypt even today, it's it's very dangerous, and they're out there all the time. But but uh, the, the, the scene is these very, very tough young Marines would come in and use our phones. And, and on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, whatever day the next day was, because it's, there's an eight-hour eight time difference from the East Coast, so it's 11 hours to the West Coast of the U.S., uh, they, would, they would call. We would let them call home. And on this particular night, it was, uh, it was um, very common, uh, as you could hear it echoing all through the green room, that they would end... I can't even do it. Every conversation with uh, with the same six words. Uh, I love you too. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I love you too. And um, and it was it was they knew it was closing the distance between them and the phone on their mom's wall in their kitchen that they probably couldn't reach uh, when they first started. Uh, uh, you know when they first kind of recognized it. And now here they are, Marines, and they're still calling home and and trying to connect. It was it was. I love writing that. I, lo- I love rerunning that column because it, it moves me every time I read yeah. it. I read it too. I felt the same way. You know, there are, as you mentioned in that column, there are uh, no American service personnel in Iraq now, but plenty of contractors and lots of people uh, doing the business of the United States, so they are all to be remembered as well. But yeah. uh, why did you decide to take up that mission? It was, um, I, you know, I it, it, it goes pretty far back. I I wrote about it a little bit. I, I just turned 65 in December, and I'm fine with, with birthdays. I don't mind that. What did bother me was I, I found out you have to sign up for Medicare. And when I had to fill out that form, I felt very old very quickly. But um, way back when, in the, in the 1960s, when I got thrown out of Marietta College, 
Um, I happened to have had the good sense to get thrown out in mid-semester, and back in those days there was still a draft, but the draft, the college had only reported to the draft board in October, just, you know, who was in college and who wasn't. Uh, so I had about six or seven months to be able to figure out how to not end up in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And I put myself on the um, on the waiting list for a National Guard unit near my house, and my name came up, and I joined the National Guard. So, And back in those days, it wasn't like it is now. I mean, some units went. Most did not. Mine did not, and I knew there was a very small chance of my National Guard unit going. Okay, that's the background to it, but now you shift forward to 2000. Uh, and one, uh, and 9-11 has happened. Um, everybody is on edge. I called Karen Hughes, who at the time was the uh, counselor to the president, and asked to be put into the game, uh, but they just didn't have a slot for me then. But as it came to pass in 2003, uh, I got a call from Coral Rove. I was, I was given a speech in the Washington Hilton, you know, up on Connecticut Avenue. You know where it is. Yep. And... Um, came up out of that parking garage underneath and I had a message called for messages and it was the White House saying that Mr. Rove needed to speak to me tonight. And you will understand this too. When somebody like Rove or Quayle or Gingrich or somebody like that said they needed to speak to me tonight, it was generally because I was quoted saying something that they were <laughs> they so angry like... with that they wanted to get they wanted to make sure they called me before they got over their mad. <laughs> <laughs> but Carl said he wanted me to go to Iraq, and he said, not just for a weekend. This is supposed to be for about about six weeks, maybe eight weeks. And uh, the idea was to to set up a situ a system where we could get non combat news in Iraq back to U.S. markets. Uh, so not not network, but the the local affiliates. The idea being that somebody that the affiliate in Hartford would always take a piece if it featured, uh, you know, a young soldier, or marine, or you know, naval, naval uh, you know, airman from Hartford. Absolutely. They'll they'll take that piece. You know that. Sure. And um, and so I, you know, I said that's great. So I called my wife, who at the time was at the Department of Homeland Security. She was one of the very very first employees when it was just in some Quonset huts. And I said that Rove had called and wanted me to go at Iraq. And her first response was. Why do you get to go? She, <laughs> she'd been fighting this thing, you know, coming home every night. Her, I, she had clearances that were so high, I wasn't allowed to know what the clearance was. And um, and here I was going to go up to Iraq. So I did. And I, what was supposed to be six or eight weeks ended up being six months. And it was it was one of the great experiences of my life. And the reason I started with that National Guard thing, Josh, is because I, I, I couldn't write three days a week. It was, it was just too much going on. But I did write every Sunday. And... Um, one of the things I mentioned was that I, I felt that I was blessed because I was being I was given the opportunity to at least partially repay what I considered That's right. to be a 35 year old debt, and I got tons of emails from guys my age who had not gone to Vietnam, which was in my generation the the seminal event of our of males in in our generation, and they were never going to even get to partially repay the debt, and they were very jealous of me. Yeah, I mean, there's so I had a sort of similar experiences post 9/11. You wonder what you can do. Right. Do you actually want to, you know, knock on the door at Langley and say, "Will you take me?" Right, uh, exactly. But exactly. Uh, uh, hats hats off to you actually for going and, and the work that you did. That was a great experience. Um, let's end, Rich, uh, because uh, I think you know, as we're taping this little broadcast of the weekend, just a few days before the Florida primary, a primary that is either going to continue to throw this race into turmoil 
with a Gingrich victory or perhaps clarify it and allow uh, Governor Mitt Romney to move on toward other primaries and caucuses and begin to amass enough delegates for victory. And I think, you know, we might agree, even though you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat, that the GOP field is largely imperfect, even at this point. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'd love to he- I'd like to hear some of Mitt uh, on the stump in Florida and in debate with uh, with Newt Gingrich, because being on the stump and doing debates with Barack Obama are going to be a big part of the the ticket to the 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue uh, a year from now. And let's just have a final talk about whether this potentially leading candidate is up to the job. Let's hear Mitt. Uh, in Florida yesterday talking about Cuba. Well, first of all, you, uh, you, you thank heavens that Fidel Castro has returned to his maker and will be sent uh, uh, to, uh, to another land. Um, now, number two, you work very aggressively with the new leadership in, in Cuba to try and move them towards a more open degree than they've had in the past. Is this a genial, likable enough guy, quick enough with the phrase to be president? Uh, it's, uh, the genial, genial, uh, genial and likable, no. Uh, but I think, but I don't think people are looking. I disagree with it with the the, ging, the Newtonian theory that the best debater ought to be the the candidate. I mean, there's going to be at a maximum three debates, say they're an hour and a half apiece, so that's three. That's four and a half hours total out of the next four years, and I'm not sure that's going to be the the final test of of what people are looking for in um, in a president. Uh, but I do think that overall, although he does, he is sometimes clangingly. Um, uh, tin-eared about some of the stuff he says, uh, Romney I'm talking about. Um, I do think that overall he tends to present uh, a, the, the look and feel of somebody that most, if not Tea Party members, certainly uh, everybody to their center and to independents, uh, that this is a guy who we think may be able to handle that job. And we'll see as we move through the process. But I think that's something that, that is a, that's far different than I, what I think moderates and independents think about uh, Newt Gingrich or or, or Rick Santorum. Uh, that uh, I, I suspect that if I mean the, the White House is doing everything but running pro Newt Gingrich ads in Florida to try to make sure he does well, does well because they would like nothing better than to run against Newt. Well, that's true, and you know people seem to be so caught in the moment that they think that if. I mean, remember uh, how long it took McCain to get clear of his opponents in 2008. The thought that you know that this campaign could have some clarity within two months or so still gives him uh, a large lead to be to and, sort of get and, hailed as the nominee. And Senator Obama and Senator Clinton didn't wrap it up until June four years ago. Absolutely. And what happens is, though, it's, as you know, they, what happens is, and our listeners know, that once a nominee is is effectively chosen, even if even if he, he or she doesn't have, you know, the, the, the numerics for it, the arc is clear to everybody and they sort of get out of the way. Everybody starts to fall in behind them and, and you know, begins to march. And uh, one of the things that I, I think, I, I know we're our side is counting on, is that uh, Romney may not be every Republican's first choice, but President Obama is their last choice. And I think that's what the, uh, the Romney campaign, which has been set up uh, to handle a war of attrition, a long uh, uh, primary process, that's what I think they're counting on when they come out the other end. Now, before we completely uh, put dirt on the coffin of Newt Gingrich, because it's been done before yeah. to, to people's shame. <laughs> Mine. Uh, yours too, Rich. Yeah. Uh, let's, you know, he, he walked into South Carolina. I read some of your mullings moving into South Carolina that you expected a Romney win, but certainly not a, a Gingrich blowout. Let's hear a little bit from South Carolina, and maybe I'll finish by asking you, who perhaps know Newt 
Gingrich better than anyone else on the uh, on the scene today who actually worked with him back in the 90s whether this is a guy who who has you know one more life left him in this campaign I think the destructive vicious negative nature of much of the news media makes it harder to govern this country harder to attract decent people to run for public office and I am appalled that you would begin a presidential debate on a topic like that In, in the Watergate days, we would have called that a non-denial denial. He never did answer the question. I think as you wrote from Charleston, I mean, you, were, you, were, you had to put your hats off to that performance and certainly the result of the South Carolina primary. Oh, yeah, that was the best week in politics for, for any candidate that I'd seen in a long time. And it was, had to be, it, as luck would have it, for Newt, it was coupled with one of the worst week in politics that I've seen from a major campaign in Romney, largely due to the fact that he couldn't figure out what to say about his taxes, which, you know, four days later he had a release anyway, which he, they could have said that right in the beginning. So in Mullings, Rich, you're never afraid to uh, to predict where things might come out, but you always say that your predictions are, are right only fifty percent of the time. That's right. That, that covers <laughs> me, and and it's that might be that I, I, I'm giving myself too much credit. I I don't, I don't even know that much. So as we finish up here, Rich, uh, on Tuesday, Florida voters go to the polls from uh, Key West up to Pensacola. How do you think this comes out? I think at the end of the process, uh, uh, Romney will win Florida. Uh, it, they've flaunt, flaunted the RNC rules and it's winner take all. I think it's 50 delegates. Uh, but I think that, that Romney will win by somewhere in the three to five percentage point area. Uh, that won't kill Gingrich. That will do, that, I think that'll be the end of Santorum. Uh, and then they'll go on to Nevada, where I expect Romney will win again and probably Paul will run a, Ron Paul will run a very strong second. Well, Rich Galen, founder of Mullings.com, uh, a, an old friend of mine for so long. It was great catching up with you. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, you're Optics. one of the, if I can have 30 seconds of, of privilege, uh, that you, Josh, are one of the one of the principal adherents of a rule we have here in Washington, that if you once you're in this game at a certain level, you recognize that we're not enemies, we're just political opponents, and the game clock is not always on, so that we're, we don't always have to go after each other. And you are one of the true gentlemen in this business, and it's always been a privilege knowing you. Thanks, Rich. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. We're thrilled to be joined now by Barrett Goodman, writer and director of Clinton, the forthcoming installment of PBS's The American Experience, a four-hour documentary on the 42nd President of the United States, premiering on February 20th and 21st on a PBS station near you. Barrett Goodman, as I said in my intro, holder of one of the best jobs in polyoptics. Welcome to our show. It's great to be with you, Josh. Congratulations on the show. Um, had the uh, opportunity to watch all four hours prior to us getting together. And for a person who spent their entire life, I suspect, from early 1992 to really just three weeks before the Lewinsky story broke, and then continuing to be very close to the White House in 98, 99, 2000, uh, and then f- maintained relationships with so many people uh, from the Clinton years in the in the 12 years since President Clinton has left office. Uh, and President Clinton himself saw him just uh, a few months ago at, at, the, uh, at his library in Little Rock celebrating the 20th anniversary 
of the announcement of his campaign. It was amazing to see on your four hours so many of the faces that were so uh, important both to me and to the country from people like my bosses, Dee Dee Myers, Don Baer, uh, Mike McCurry, to our nemesis like Tony Blankley, who worked for Newt Gingrich, and uh, Ken, Kenneth Starr, and even people who we didn't really have much of a relationship with at the time, like the attorneys for Paula Jones. Uh, it was an amazing process of pulling all these people together. Tell us how that process begins from the moment you get the assignment, that coveted assignment, to create the American experience for PBS. Well, it was a coveted assignment. First of all, I, I, I remember very clearly the day that my boss brought me up to Boston and um, he slid across the desk the sort of collected works of American experience biographies of presidents and said, are you ready to join the Pantheon? And I immediately started ticking through my head about who they hadn't done, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes <laughs> and, uh, you know, you name it. And uh, he said Clinton. And I was I was shocked. I, had it been enough time since Clinton, you know, left the the stage for, this is about what year when did this happen this happened uh, two years ago almost exactly and and you know it's 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 usually the case that presidents have been dead certainly but even living presidents have been have been off the stage for a while before american experience will will try a biography but mark samuels who's the executive producer felt that you know the passions had quieted enough uh he was enough of an historical figure for us to try this. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, whatever whatever politics you have, you check them at the door. You know, this is history. This is not, there's no axis to grind here, no personal political points of view to be expressed. And uh, I didn't need to hear that, but it was it was good to hear. Uh, and we tried very, very hard to to really understand him in, in both his, his glory and, and, in, and in all the obvious flaws, flaws that uh, accompany uh, the glory in, in Bill Clinton. But to get to your question, I mean, you know, to get these people to cooperate proved easier than I thought. The, the, the foundation, the Clinton Foundation, was very cooperative and understood that this was probably going to be um, a very straight down the middle kind of look at his life and understood that we were going to go forward with or without their blessing, and they gave it. And that allowed us to book many of those closest to Clinton who would have otherwise been suspicious of, of the project. Let's begin with one of them, my boss, Dee Dee Myers. Um, and if you could describe over the four hours sort of the the, the operating narrative uh, about the show, it's really about people uh, who are might be given a second chance in what they do with them. Let's hear Dee Dee. How many second chances does any one person deserve? You know, Clinton's view is as many second chances as a person is willing to try to take, you know? I mean, as many times as you fail, don't you deserve the chance to redeem yourself? Um, isn't history loaded with people who have fallen and gotten up and fallen and gotten up and fallen and gotten up and done great things? Now, it helps when you're Dee Dee Myers and you have established this incredible beauty in your age. Uh, in addition to you as a great writer and director, you have a wonderful cinematographer and lighting technician because she looks great on film, and your music selection, the composition, is fantastic. So uh, tell me about how uh, how long did it take to assemble these people, and in the writing process, do you script first or do you interview first? It varies from film to film. In this case, we did script first, uh, but the script is only a kind of loose blueprint. We are very open to changes as we go through the process, and uh, there continually are surprises. You know, people take us in new directions and open new doors and insights that we hadn't thought of. 
Uh, and one never knows, you know, about an interview how it'll turn out. We until they sit down. These people were people, by and large, who weren't going to allow a pre-interview. They were going to give us one shot at it. And you know, you're surprised sometimes. And Didi, of course, everyone knows is is uh, you know an affable, you know, pleasant, smart woman. But she turned out to be even more than that. I mean, she was just you know tremendously insightful. She loves Clinton, but she's critical of Clinton. Uh, she sees the whole man and um, those are the kind of interviews that really uh, sing uh, you know we we just kind of got on a roll and we didn't stop and we never we ended up interviewing about 70 people for the inter for the documentary which was an, uh, certainly a personal record it was just that we felt we you know we hadn't cracked him and we just kept going kept going because he is such an elusive in some ways contradictory kind of person how much did you know about him before you came to Boston uh, you know, I was like uh, many sort of educated, informed voters, someone who thought they knew a lot about him. Uh, but of course, when you get into something like this, you learn so much more. I didn't know much about his Arkansas roots at all, his early, you know, governor, gubernatorial years, his Oxford years, and all those things play such an important part of who he is. So it was a tremendous learning experience. Yeah, let's dig into that because you have an interview with a woman that all of us working in the White House sort of got to know as the ultimate friend of Bill, Carolyn Staley. And I think a lot of us hadn't really thought back much to the Arkansas years beside the sort of standard biographical stuff. And the footage you were able to unearth of the campaign songs that were playing in his early congressional races. And, and uh, Carolyn says something to you like, because we always knew about the Boys Nation meeting with President Kennedy in the Rose Garden. Uh, and your narrator, um, Campbell Scott, uh, says he rushed to the front of the line. And then Carolyn says, quotes Bill, saying, we'll never forget that, will we, with this level of excitement. And the bringing to life his boyhood is something that I think uh, America has not seen in a long, long time. And this will shed new light on who Bill Clinton was growing up in Arkansas. Yeah, I think you can really, you can really trace back the, the essential duality of Bill Clinton to his childhood. I mean, as, as you just alluded to in Carolyn's quote, he had a tremendous idealism. That's the part of Bill Clinton that's sometimes lost, although it's manifest now in his post-presidency a lot. He really wanted to do good for people and to do and to do public service for the best of reasons. He also had a tremendously fractured emotionally, a fractured childhood in which there was domestic abuse in his house. He was, of course, uh, raised by a single mother. Um, there was a lot of lying going on in his house, a lot of hiding. He never showed the outside world, even his closest friends, even Carolyn Staley, who knew him very well, didn't know about the abuse going on. He was adept at hiding things and, and, and very adept at spinning, talking his way out of circumstances. And I think those later qualities that, of course, manifest themselves in his presidency had their roots very deep. Let's hear a little bit from a, a journalist who, through the, his coverage of Bill Clinton at the Washington Post uh, and then writing about Clinton, the survivor, John Harris, currently editor-in-chief of Politico, he's a uh, major figure in your documentary and provides some thoughts on Clinton that I don't think we've heard before either. Let's hear John. Success, misjudgment, in some cases catastrophe, followed by comeback. That resilience is central to who he is as a politician. I think it's central to who he is as a man. John, you use a lot in the 
coverage of Clinton's early life in Arkansas, particularly when you talk about the role of Hillary Rodham and later Hillary Rodham Clinton, how she came from the Midwest, family in Pennsylvania, uh, her first uh, experiences in Arkansas. You talk about um, the common love that Bill and Hillary Clinton had expressed through John's view. Tell us about that. You know, a lot of people... uh ponder and wonder about the Clinton marriage. How could this be real? How could this be um, kind of sincere given the serial cheating that was going on from uh, the very earliest days? But it, it really, that's one of the mysteries that seemed to clear up for me the more I got into this. And John, John along with many others, really uh, sort of underscored the fact that these two people were in love with each other and their love was based not on maybe traditional notions of romance but a shared love of public service and a huge amount of respect for each other each of these people were each other's muse and they each respected the other more than anybody else in the world um you know it's for people this smart it's not it's not easy to find others that you feel are your equal. And, you know, Bill always felt that Hillary was smarter than he was, sincerely. Uh, And I know that Hillary felt the same about Bill. And that can be its own tremendous, strong bond. And I think that, you know, it's not all that mysterious in the end, their relationship. I do think they're in love with each other and they have a very strong marriage, but it's a marriage that's based on these you know, these pillars rather than the pillars of, of sort of traditional romantic love where where cheating would be would be a very serious undermining uh, thing. You know, it didn't. It wasn't because they had these other strengths. You know, it's interesting. Um, those of us who were in the White House from 1993 to 1998 knew uh, of the role that Dick Morris increasingly played uh, after the uh, 1994 congressional elections, um, and. We also, those of us who just watched politics, have tracked Dick's departure from the campaign in 1996 under dubious circumstances, and then his sort of turn to a, a, a very much of a, a right-wing commentator on Fox News. And I was interested sort of in this sort of candor, honesty, and sort of conciliatory tone that I think Dick sat down with you and talked about really the role of, of Hillary in Arkansas and and how Clinton was able to pivot after the 1994 election. What was your relationship with and your the manner of your discussions with Dick that had him sort of take off the gloves a little bit and be much more straight than he usually is? I think he understood that this was his chance to claim his role in history. I mean, not not his only chance, God knows. He's written his own books. He's appeared in other people's books. But this was the first big documentary film about the Clintons and and Clinton's presidency. And my impression was that he understood that we understood how important he was in in the political resurrection of Bill Clinton and that this was his chance to... To claim that mantle, it would would not have done to sort of um, take a partisan political swipe at Clinton, you know, in the context of a conversation about how important his role had been. So, I do, I am convinced that that Dick Morris, whatever you say about him, you can say a lot of things, um, was more responsible for Bill Clinton's political comeback in 1994 than any other person other than Bill Clinton himself. As we uh, as we look at 1994 um, and actually rewind back to 1992, let's get off a little bit the the 
discussion about the personalities, let's talk about Barrett Goodman, the filmmaker, and the filmmaking process. Again, you've been at this for two years. When you get this assignment from WGBH, and you're going to make an American experience, uh, you know, if you think about all the Arkansas TV affiliates that might have archival footage, the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Library, the U.S. government, the Library of Congress, where does it start, and how do you keep track of all the stuff that you've got to screen, log, think about how it plays into the narrative, the pulling together of still photography from White House photographers. I mean, because that's what separates an American experience film from any kind of other news coverage. Uh, thank you. I mean, you thank you for understanding how difficult that, that, that process is. It's, it's an enormous, uh, over, sometimes overwhelming Undertaking, and and I was fortunate to have uh, you know a few people on our staff, a small staff of four or five of us, but uh, who were you know as committed and obsessed and passionate about this as I was. You know, you you begin this process with some well-known sources of, of footage. You go to the um, the archival footage houses that have collected the network news for years and years. You see what they have. But pretty quickly, you realize it's only part of the story. You need to get underneath that. You need to go to families, people. We went to Arkansas Friends. We got photos of young Bill from Friends of Virginia. David Leopolis. And you, David, you thank a lot of people in your credits. Precisely. And and uh, and the Clinton Library was helpful, uh, releasing photos, I think, that had never been released before, private photos. Um, but the, by far the mother load for us was... Uh, Bill McNeely, who you mentioned earlier. Bob McNeely, Bob right. McNeely, excuse me. The White House photographer who had sat on just hundreds of photos never before published, just literally in boxes in his home, and was more than happy to share them with us. And I think they take us in deeper into the White House, into the Oval Office, into the meetings, uh, more than any other single source of, of our, our archive. And, you know, you really see the emotion. There's a great photo you may remember from the film where, Bill and Bill Clinton and uh, Newt Gingrich are negotiating over the budget. It's this tense period, and and Clinton has his face in his hands, and y you pan over and you see Newt looking away, you know, completely, almost uh, oblivious to Clinton's personal pain. And of course, it's just a moment frozen in time, but it speaks volumes for the political situation right. we're in. And those kinds of photos, just you grab them, you jump on them, and those make it into the film. Yeah, I mean. Y uh you heard a little bit of our prior conversation with Rich Galen, who was uh, sort of back at the political office of of, uh, of Newt Gingrich after those negotiations happened. And you knew that Bob McNeely was taking these black and white shots with his Leica camera. And you knew that, well, if you went up to the photo office of the White House, you might get a chance to peer through them and have a sense of sort of the, the, re the really human negotiation that was going on between Clinton and Gingrich at the time. And it's sort of a sort of a, a it's such a surprise to see it brought out in your film Barrack one thing that Adam Belmar and I have talked a lot about on Polyoptics on Sirius XM Channel 124 is how Pete Souza, the current White House photographer, is putting out so much material now that none of this will come as a surprise 20 years hence when the American experience is made up about Barack Obama. Yeah, you know, these photographers get really, really close in, and they're, they're I don't know how the, the presidents handle it. They, they're, they're always around. I mean, we have these moody shots of Clinton... Um, looking out the window of the Oval Office, and Bob McNeely told us, though that was the moment, 
uh, just after the Lewinsky affair had been broken. And here he is alone in the Oval Office, clearly. Uh, I mean, I would be stunned if he weren't thinking about this very issue. And there's a photographer 10 feet away from him. Uh, they, they must be part of the furniture after a while because uh, there'd be no other way to stand their presence so much. Um, but it is, it is a real window into history. And um, we were just very fortunate that uh, he, you know, he really opened up the the archive for us and let us let us have fun with it. One piece, we were talking about still photography, but some of the video mm-hmm. uh, during the early days of the yeah. White House uh, really brings the, the chaos of the of the first two years of the Clinton administration home because, well, I lived it. Uh, but you show um, sort of the, the the video prior to going live for mm-hmm. President Clinton's Oval Office address to the nation. And I don't, it looks as if his teleprompter is not working. It looks like there are 25 people hustling around the Oval Office, uh, which there were. Uh, and you can almost see, see the concern in the president's face like, I'm about to speak to hundreds of millions of people, and uh, this place is not ready to get ready for prime time. Yeah, that was a bit of serendipity finding that, but it perfectly matched, as you point out, the the mood in the White House at the time. I mean, Michael Waldman, his chief speechwriter, told us about how often the teleprompters didn't work. <laughs> it seen the teleprompters broken practically every speech. I mean, the guy was it, it was chaos. There, you know, he's famous for rewriting speeches on the way to the speech, and the poor teleprompter officer, uh, you know operator has to type them in as you know seconds before he goes on the air it was a completely chaotic operation for a while and leon panetta gets a lot of credit as you know for taking that in hand but for a while there it was um how did you get that piece of video what, what was is that uh, white house video or was that uh, network uh sort of raw feed not it's network raw feed yeah. and there were people who were collecting network raw feed the problem the tricky part about that piece of video was that the original version of it as i recall was was so bad we couldn't use it and it was a kind of late lucky find that we found uh, another version maybe from another camera that was much better um, but it is it is a remarkable moment there's also another piece of footage of clinton preparing to speak to the to the nation after uh, his grand jury testimony in the in the Lewinsky matter, and we have the first 45 seconds before the camera's turned on. Um, the camera's on, but it's not being broadcast yet. And they're counting down the, the seconds, and his nervousness and his anxiety and his the gravity of this address is obvious all over his face. And the minute the camera, you know, goes live, it vanishes, and his confidence comes out, and, you know, that's what Clinton was so great at, and you know, as we've as we've been talking, Barack, uh, as a as a longtime, lifelong Clinton fan, a person who holds him in high regard, who recognizes his failures, but thinks that both uh, his presidency and so much his post presidency has stood for so much. Um, it was hard to watch part two of the American Experience. Uh, uh, titled The Survivor. I want to h- listen to a little bit of the introduction uh, that you hear on that part, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Bill Clinton had come into office with notions of an heroic presidency. To inscribe his name in history alongside FDR and JFK. Good afternoon. But on the afternoon of December 11th, 1998, he came to the Rose Garden of the White House to apologize to the American people. I am profoundly sorry for all I have done wrong in words and deeds. Presidency spans eight years, 
and your documentary is four hours. Um, and uh, you have a you co- compile in that little clip uh, Peter Jennings intoning uh, the president coming into the Rose Garden, Sam Donaldson uh, doing a little bit of his piece. And you also, I think, very fulsomely, as you go into great detail about the grand jury and about impeachment and about sort of the the final redemption of Bill Clinton, uh, you use the clip from Dale Bumper's Senate floor speech in which um, he says something like, Senator from Arkansas, Dale Bumper, is saying, you know, whenever people say this is not about sex, it's about sex. And if you think about where Newt Gingrich is today, and even the revolution, revelations last week about the type of person he was at that time, uh, and you, you, you understand the gravity with which you take this assignment from PBS, and they and your producers push across the desk to you the entire series of American Experience shows, and you realize PBS is not going to redo Clinton for the American Experience series. This is the one shot. We spend an awful lot of time, Barrett Goodman, on that episode when even between 1997 and 2001, a lot of the nation's business still managed to get done. This was obviously a very hard decision how to wait the Lewinsky scandal in the film. And I know I'm going to have to answer lots of questions like this one because uh, people can view this differently. My own point of view is this. It wasn't the affair itself, but it was the fallout from the affair that, not, you know, in real life paralyzed the administration. Sure, of course, business got done, but the country was obsessed by this. The administration was paralyzed to some degree by this. And this became the lever by which Clinton's enemies and opponents tried to and nearly succeeded in unseating him from power. I mean, you, given the fact that he was the first person, president impeached in the 20th century, the second president ever impeached, one has to give an awful lot of time to this. And, and even more important, in the dynamics that you unpack when you when you watch this unfold, this whole scandal, you really see the poisonous partisanship that is still with us. I think this is the beginning of that era. And that era is lasted to this day and will last, I'm afraid to say, into the future. And I think that this is the spring that, um, you know, uh, kind of launches that, that, that era. And therefore, it becomes very, very important. I mean, Dee Dee Myers uh, herself says late in the program, it's a tragedy that will always overshadow or shadow, not overshadow, but shadow President Clinton's presidency because it, it essentially made the last two years of his presidency uh, impossible to get anything done. We now know that you know, there were, was talk about solving the Social Security uh, problem, um, which became impossible because of the poisonous relationship between Congress and the president. And so... It's again. It's not the affair per se, but what the affair led to that becomes that has to be, I think, the major focus of the second part of the of the program. It is an amazing time travel uh, for a viewer, especially one who thinks he knew knows a lot of the story, to go back to Hope, Arkansas, to Hot Springs, to Little Rock. 
to Washington, D.C. and the inauguration, to go to New Hampshire and hear again the last dog dies speech, to even go back to the 88 convention and his interrupted uh, nomination of Michael Dukakis, uh, and to hear the commentary of so many people that, that, that you work with, that you came to know, that are still very much on the scene, put together with the interstitial narration of Campbell Scott, who does a wonderful job. Tell us about the music and how do you match the music to what's on screen? You hire very good people who know what they're doing, and he certainly does. He's a ver- veteran composer, and, and um, it's very hard to score four hours. I have to take my... I don't know how he does it, but, the you know, it's... You want music that's neutral and yet sort of supports the, the the narrative, doesn't overshadow it, doesn't try to tell you what to think or feel. And I think Joel's music succeeds in that. It it, it it's there but it's not there and, and it and it just enhances the experience without sort of being editorial, which is the kiss of death, I think, for for a composer, so uh, you know, I'm very grateful to his talent and his uh, his hard work. The tradition of PBS is to do uh, one American experience per president, but I think if you think about the 11 years since Bill Clinton has been out of office, there's almost an American experience or two in what a president does probably for the public good around the world after he leaves office, and uh, I'm sure there'll be more written and filmed and documentaries put together either by PBS or others that uh, talk about the sort of what Bill Clinton did after that point for the rest of his life. Barrett Goodman, four hours on PBS, The American Experience Clinton, premiering on a station, PBS station near you, February 20th and 21st. Thank you so much for joining us in Polyoptics. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Josh. of the United States for the people of the United States. POTUS.